Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. It is the curse of surveillance. You have to listen every morning, and we thank you for that worldwide on economics, finance, investment, on international relations. For the next 15 minutes, we celebrate Kenneth S. Rogoff, the book of the season, The Curse of Cash. It is highly readable. It is a glorious 232 pages about the obvious about cash, but we'll get also talk about negative interest rates. He folds in a lot of economic history, as we always expect from Ken Rogoff. We'll get to that in a moment. I'm Tom Keen in New York. Michael McKee in Atlanta, the National Association for Business Economics meetings. Michael McKee in Atlanta at the important NABE meetings. Uh, Mr. Lockhart spoke yesterday. What are you going to do today? Can commiserate over the Atlanta Braves? <laughs> I don't think there are a huge number of Atlanta Braves fans here at NABE since the economists are from all over the country. But there'll be a lot more talk about the Fed and what they're going to do after Lyle Brainerd's speech yesterday suggesting there's no reason to raise rates. Of course, everybody's priced out bad idea. But there's still, you know what it is, Tom, is there's an almost universal feeling here among the economists that what the Fed is doing isn't working. Where the disagreement comes right. in is what do you do next? Well, let me get to the book right now now, uh, Michael, and then we can dive into that with Ken Rogoff in the too short time we have with him. Professor Rogoff, congratulations. I want you to explain why we can't get rid of big dollar denomination paper, because I don't use it. Michael McKee doesn't use it. I would suggest the Rogoff household uses it. Let's start with who uses big denomination cash. Well, I mean, people use it a little. So I actually experimented with using $100 bills, taking them to the supermarket. They'd always have to show it to three people. Took it to a watch store, and one guy said, oh, I'm going to need three sources of three pieces of identification if you want to cash this. But most of it's being used in the world underground economy. A lot of it's in the United States. There's a lot of tax evasion. It makes it easier to hoard, hide, move port. And there's a lot of illegal activity, drugs, human trafficking, extortion, racket you name it. Well, Ken, uh, the question is, you know, it, it's easy for Tom and me to uh, adopt a non-cash society. We're carrying around debit cards and things in our uh, pockets. But the criticism has been, what do you do about the unbanked, the people without a lot of financial uh, background, of people who, you know, don't have bank accounts, who don't uh, function in a cashless society? So first of all, I am not for a cashless society. I am for a less cash society, so I'm getting rid of the hundreds and fifties. And I propose over the very long term getting rid of the twenties. I think the eight percent of Americans who are unbanked are not, you know, holding the hundred dollar bills. They're not using them that much. And you can still carry a hundred thousand dollars in tens in a briefcase. My plan also calls for financial inclusion, which many countries have done, basically providing free debit account uh, accounts 
to uh, unbanked and the poor. And it's very straightforward to do that. You, most of them receive assistance, and you just pay the assistance through that. That's what Denmark and Sweden have done. Let's go to the broader picture now. Michael McKee mentioned uh, Professor Rogoff earlier, the mystery over Fed policy right now. Do you have a mystery of Janet Yellen's policy? Well, she has to represent this very divided Fed, and I think when she speaks, she tries to represent them all, and that's mm -hmm. inconsistent. It's very. There are probably some who think huge inflation's around the corner. There are others who think there'll never be inflation. There's some who are worried that uh, inflation's going to go up to, uh, you know, seven percent, and they're not going to be able to get it down. So it's it's not easy. But I, I personally think it's pretty clear they're not going to hike rates now. And if they possibly can, they will in December to maintain their credibility. What value do does it uh, have for them to keep policy unchanged? Well, they don't know where they're going in the long run. The, it's a real mystery why global real inflation-adjusted interest rates are so low. Uh, a lot of people say they know the answer, but they're different. It's hard to quantify. We have secular stagnation, uh, low productivity growth. But I think there are a lot of us who think it's still fear after the financial crisis. So the Fed doesn't know what normal is. So it's sort of hard to head for normal when you don't know what it is. When John Taylor did his Taylor rule, uh, people thought the real interest rate would be 2%, inflation 2%, <clears> that gives you 4%. And it had been 2% for 50 years up yeah. to that point. Yeah, yeah. Now, who knows what neutral is? And Janet Yellen spoke about this at uh, Jackson Hole, and she said, I think it's 1%, might be zero. One of the, the mathy things about moving from undergraduate economics to graduate is the idea of quadratics and curves, and we talk about vectors. Do we have a, a belief and an understanding that all central bankers, when they institute a policy, have to look out and get on the vector, as Greenspan talked about, measured, where we do measured incremental uh, steps along a path that we're going to predict? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a pretty good case of that. I remember Willem Bowder told me when he joined the Bank of England, he was, you know, let's, why just go 25 basis points at a time? We know we're going to move 1%. Why Arthur, we don't do well, Arthur Burns did that. He and, would make and, big moves. Yeah, but, and, and he was told, hey, look, you know, financial markets just can't take this. You've got to move a little why bit Why not? Why, Professor, can't financial markets adapt to a Fed that says we're going to go 50 basis points, one and done, to get away from the zero bound? Well, I mean, I think the problem is that, uh, you know, they, they, they don't know if you overshoot, you know, you want to move slowly. Mm -hmm. But I think at the same time, the current policy, which is quote unquote data dependent, creates a lot of volatility. One person said uh, every Fed meeting is a jump ball. And you don't want to create that situation. You'd like to say, I'm moving, here's what I'm going to do. You'd like to have some predictability. But to have predictability, you have to know in your own heart what you're going to do. And I think the Fed has a lot of uncertainty about that. Well, that's one of the other criticisms, though, is that the Fed got into this for legitimate reasons, uh, experimental monetary policy, but now doesn't know how to get out of it. They're flying blind. They don't know what the result of their exit strategy is going to be. Uh, and uh, at this point, doing additional you know, easing or, or keeping policies low may be counterproductive. Uh, it's a point that uh, your co-author of uh, This Time is Different, Carmen Reinhardt, made to us out in Jackson Hole this year. Well, they absolutely don't know the effects of these experimental policies. And I would, uh, things like quantitative easing, uh, forward guidance may not work at all. Uh, that's why in my book I argue that 
next time and think of it 10 or 20 years, we'd like to pave the way they, they can do monetary policy in a more normal, predictable way. Because they've lacked instruments, they have not been able to sort of move inflation expectations back up. They have continued to drop in Europe, in Japan, in the United mm -hmm. States, because people don't think they have an instrument. I don't think you can do anything soon, but I think over the long term, uh, develop paving the way for effective negative interest rate policy right. is the way to go. Uh, Ken Rogoff with us. The book is The Curse of Cash, and we continue here uh, with him for a short time on radio uh, this morning. When I look at central bank theory, it is a theory of watching inflation. There are, like Howard Johnson's, 28 flavors of inflation. Which inflation, within all your work at the IMF, which inflation is the one we should follow? Is it what's in our mailbox? Is it service sector? Is it goods producing? Is it a blend of that, like Cleveland? Is it some form of core, or is it what the Fed uses, PCE? You have Marty Feldstein coming on later on this program. Yeah. He's written a great new paper about this. And I think the fact is, in this age where more and more things are services, uh, technology You've is got to tilt. It's very hard right. to know what inflation <clears throat> is. You have to have a lot of humility about your measure of inflation. I would guess, I agree with Martin Feldstein, that probably inflation's been lower even than we think it is because productivity <clears throat> growth yeah. is not well yeah. measured. I want to congratulate you on the curse of cash. You, you took the level of heat you took before the book came out has only been exceeded by the heat you're taking right now. The, the gun guys and the, the drug guys, they don't like this book, do they? So I get a lot of email along the lines. This is the worst idea since banning <laughs> semi-automatic weapons. I get others saying, look, you know, if I just pay more taxes because I can't avoid it with cash, then uh, Uncle Sam will just waste yeah. the money. Uh, and there, there are certainly a lot of people who don't understand that I'm for less cash, not no cash. Right. Uh, but uh, I, tr I think I try to discuss the pros and cons with nuance, but that doesn't, of course, always lend itself to modern Twitter conversation. Here's what you need to know from Miles Kimball, esteemed at Michigan, a teacher at Michigan. The Curse of Cash is the book everyone should read about negative interest rates. That's the bonus round off of the debate over what we're going to do with cash. I'm going to lunch today with John Farrell of Bloomberg Television, Ken, and, and you know he's going to be dazzled when I pull out that wad of $500 <laughs> bills. Good for you. <laughs> That's what we're doing with our, our cash today. Ken Rogoff, The Curse of Cash. Can't say enough about it. Roger Altman with us with Evercore. He's here. Mike, I know you've got a bunch of questions for Roger, but I want to talk away from Secretary Clinton's illness and what Mr. Trump's doing about a longer view you have of an America that's beyond frustrated that they're not part of Roger Altman's world. There's a whole America out there. Their median incomes have been flat or even down, or technology's passed them by, or technology is not to their advantage. How disparate, how apart is Roger Altman's world from the rest of America? <clears throat> well, apart from uh, the reality that 99.99% of Americans have never heard of me and couldn't care less, uh, the thing that concerns me the most, just, just the number one issue facing the United States, foreign or domestic, I think, is the fall in American living standards and the uh, natural un unhappiness and anxiety that Americans are feeling as a result of it. Just a couple of quick data points. Please. Median 
real household income currently is 53,800 in round numbers a year. That's down from 58,000 in 1999, uh, quite a fall. And real wages per capita have increased 5% over 30 years. Not 5% a year, 5% total over 30 years. Mm. So, so I saw a poll last night uh, that 53% of Americans describe themselves as living paycheck to paycheck, and 58% of Americans think that their children are going to live less well than they have. Now, that whole uh, set of concerns and data uh, is a tremendous challenge for this country because if we don't succeed in reversing these declines, uh, then the cohesion of the country is at stake. And I personally think that the anger we've seen throughout this election, reflected on the one hand by the tr rise of Trump and on the other hand earlier by the Sanders uh, phenomenon, uh, is explained by this uh, voter unhappiness over living standards. Why, Roger, do you think the candidates have not focused on, other than Bernie Sanders, focused on this as the issue in terms of coming up with a policy prescription for it? Well, actually, I don't agree with that. I think Secretary Clinton has done that. If you just go on her website, the, the, the first, one of the very first things you'll see is uh, a statement that her economic strategy is aimed at raising uh, middle-class incomes. And I think she and her team would agree that this is the number one challenge, getting incomes, which in real terms have been weak, turned around. Uh, it's, it's, it's a hard task, uh, but uh, we have to focus all of our energies on it because I think the cohesion of the country is at stake, and America, the way we've always thought of it, is at stake. Let me ask you this. You are a supporter of the Clintons, and you worked in the first Clinton administration as Deputy Treasury Secretary, so you've known them for years. Do we have the wrong impression? When you see the polls that say nobody trusts Hillary Clinton, do we have the wrong impression of her? I think so. Uh, I am, I am uh, often mystified by those polls because uh, Secretary Clinton uh, has been in public life for such a long time, first lady, two-time senator from New York, Secretary of State, that so much is known about her, uh, as she likes to say herself, uh, more is known about me, the way she puts it, than any other figure in American history. Uh, I don't quite understand why people uh, have this uh, skepticism about her. Uh, she's a extraordinarily industrious person. Uh, she's dedicated, you know, since, she, since her 20s to uh, public service, beginning with the Children's Defense Fund and so forth, and way out of the public eye. I, I'm a little mystified by this sense How does of, she get the trust back? I mean, that's what this comes <coughs> down to. She's got to go out and sell herself to a public that's seen her stumble from crisis to crisis. What's the change behavior you would recommend? Uh, I, don't, I don't think she's—I she's, uh, I think what you see is the real Hillary, unlike what many people think. And I don't think some change in her demeanor or her uh, approach is uh, logical because she's out there. We see her. She's been in the public eye for such a long time. That's true. Uh, there's she's no, been there, visible for decades. Right. And, you know, you, you, hear, you hear every day or you see, <clears throat> excuse me, see in the press every day, uh, people say when you meet Hillary in a smaller setting, 
She's warm and engaging and and mm-hmm. eminently likable. Uh, and I don't I don't quite understand why that uh, uh, why the skepticism okay. about her exists. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Well, joining us now is an old friend of Bloomberg Surveillance, uh, one of America's smarter economists. Uh, he did not make it down here to Atlanta. He's up in New York, Marty Feldstein, from Harvard, uh, the former uh, president, currently president emeritus of uh, National Bureau for Economic Research, the perhaps most prestigious research point in economics. And Marty, um, I want to go straight to, uh, I didn't even ask this question. Um, Ken Rogoff was on the show just a few moments ago, and he said, you're the man to talk to about what inflation measures we should be following and why. Uh, You've got a new paper out on that, and uh, he was uh, praising it uh, tremendously. So uh, let me go straight to uh, you with with Ken's question. uh, What what inflation are we looking at? What should we be following? Well, I'm not quite sure what Ken uh, had in mind. No, we wanted to keep that a mystery from you. Okay. (laughs) He said you've got a really, really important paper on how we need to change how we study inflation. Well, how we study growth and inflation both. I think the problem with the official statistics is that they don't capture uh, the, the impact of quality change they don't capture the impact of new products. And so, to that extent, we're underestimating growth and overestimating inflation. Well, how would you change it? Uh, or do you, are you telling us that we know that we're mismeasuring, but we're, we don't know how to get it right? Uh, at this point, we don't know how to get it right. But I think it's very important that we stop saying to the public We're growing at uh, almost no growth for average households when, in fact, growth is real. The standard of living is rising, and we're just underestimating it. And by underestimating it, we're we're causing people to lose confidence in our economic system, lose confidence in free trade. So I think there's a real miscommunication, a real mis. Um, misperception of what's going on. I'd like to say, Professor, without the rigorous academics that you are known for, that we have tried at surveillance to measure this and that we get more mail on this issue than any other mail we get. Our listeners say, this is the inflation in my mailbox. What does Janet Yellen think? Do we need to shift to a more consumer-based service sector analysis of price change? It's it's not just a question of where which prices we're measuring. It's that whether it's new products or existing products uh, or services, we are understating the how much. I don't know how much. I wish mm-hmm. I knew, yeah. but I, my guess is if we're talking about real growth officially of numbers like one and two percent, the reality could be three or four percent. And that means we're mismeasuring inflation by similar amounts. 
You're saying inflation, your, your run rate of inflation is higher than 3%? No, the opposite. Mm. What I'm saying is that in terms of the real standard of living, our inflation is less. So when people say, gee, my wages are rising in money terms at uh, 2.5%, but inflation is 2%, so there's really no growth, I think they're what that story misses out is what's been happening to the quality of products and what's been happening to the introduction right. of new goods, new new services that we didn't have yeah. before. Martin Feldstein with us of Harvard University. Uh, much to talk about here. Marty Feldstein, Lawrence Summers writes today as he has written consistently on a need for infrastructure. You exceptionally presciently two years ago mentioned infrastructure in terms of a new fiscal policy, how easy is it to implement a national <clears throat> infrastructure program? Well, of course, most infrastructure, most of the infrastructure we uh, we see in our daily lives that needs improving, uh, that's local. It's done by local cities and by towns rather than by the federal government. And when the so-called stimulus package back in 2009 uh, talked about shovel-ready projects, Boy, there really weren't a lot of shovel-ready projects. So that's how do we fix that? Within your decades of experience on this, can the federal government provide an impulse to local infrastructure projects? Yeah, it's called money. <laughs> if the federal government makes money available to local governments, and we're mm -hmm. not in a hurry to do it, then over time uh, we could see some maintenance projects and other infrastructure projects. But you know, it's not a big priority. A few years ago, I would have said the economy is not moving. Uh, unemployment is stuck at 7%, so maybe we need to have some fiscal stimulus. So you don't think infrastructure is a priority right now? I don't think it's a priority. I don't think it's a bad thing. I think there are some unmet needs that could be where <clears throat> we could improve uh, conditions in, in cities and roads and so on. Uh, I think the private sector could do more of that. You look around the world and you see major airports that are privately owned. Uh, so uh, I think that there are much more important things in terms of the economy. We don't need more demand. We need better incentives. Uh, what would those incentives be? I mean, how do you get us out? Uh, it sounds like you're saying there's no ro role for uh, fiscal policy in terms of trying to raise the uh, stagnant low growth rate that so, we have. So a couple of thoughts about that. When we talk about fiscal policy, for some people that just means uh, fiscal deficits. But fiscal policy is also about the structure of our tax system. So we have a tax system that um, in terms of corporate taxes discourages investment, encourages firms to do their investing elsewhere in the world. So I think there's a growing understanding that we need a major reform of our corporate taxes. Uh, I think in terms of the personal taxes, I think there's more that we can do by lowering rates and closing loopholes that wouldn't increase the size of the fiscal deficit, but that would make the tax system better and would help us to yeah. uh, have a, a stronger economy. Have you spoken to Mr. Trump? I have not. How could Mr. Trump not call upon Martin <laughs> Feldstein? Would you please explain the new Republican fiscal politics? 
there are a lot of people Mr. Trump hasn't called upon. Uh, when I talk to some of my, uh, my friends who have served in Republican administrations, economists who've served in Republican administrations, mm -hmm. they say that their phone has not rung. So uh, I think there's a general feeling mm -hmm. that uh, Trump is focusing on getting elected. And if he gets elected, mm -hmm. then he will figure out what he wants to do about policy. Michael, that's one of the themes in Atlanta, isn't it? Well, there are an awful lot of people who are questioning what would happen. We spoke yesterday with mm -hmm. the CEO of Pulte Homes, who said that um, his government relations people have presented him with a detailed uh, opinion on what would happen if Hillary Clinton, what would happen to housing if Hillary Clinton were elected president. And they have no idea what would happen if Donald Trump were elected president. Yeah. What's that uncertainty? There's a mathematical equation, Professor Feldstein. We have to fold uncertainty in there. Yes, I think there's no question that there's more uncertainty, and that's holding back business investment. They don't know what's going to happen to the tax structure. Mm -hmm. They don't know what's going to happen to regulation. So I right. think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing less business investment. Today at our Bloomberg headquarters, we celebrate your colleague Kenneth Rogoff's book yes. on cash. It has been controversial. He gets lots of hate mail from the uh, criminal and tax evasion element. <laughs> How big is the black economy in America? How big are the people against Ken Rogoff's book, The Curse of Cash? Gee, I have no idea. But we don't need $100 bills. But I think small businesses uh, still like um, to have the convenience of dealing in cash. They don't want credit cards. They don't want all the yeah. hassle that goes and, with it. And, and Mike, Professor Rogoff was adamant. He's not He's not requesting the elimination of cash, just right. the big bills. I think that would help. I think it would help for tax evasion. It would help for criminal activities. And so, yes, that would be a good thing. I think Ken has made a, uh, uh, a very convincing case on that. What do you think of... Uh the Fed and where they are now and what they should be doing. Um, Lael Brainerd seemed to be dispositive <clears throat> yesterday, even though she's uh, not one of the more important uh, voices on the Fed. Well, I think the Fed is, is uh, continuing to find excuses not to raise interest rates. So every time they meet, they find a new excuse. It's China, it's the stock market, it's the currency but they don't want to raise rates. So what do I think they're really doing? I think the Fed is going to keep real rates negative, uh, and that means keeping regular rates very low in order to push up the rate of inflation. As a byproduct, they'll get lower unemployment, but I think their real goal is to have a higher inflation rate a couple of years out so by higher, I mean three, three and a half percent, so that they can then raise well, short-term rates. Mike, yes, are they failing? Has that failed? It's be no, I don't think so. I don't. They haven't gotten there yet, but inflation is definitely. How on do you the respond rise. to neo-Fisherian critics looking at Irving Fisher's work from a hundred years ago, eighty years ago? How do you uh, respond to people that go, if you push rates lower, you end up with disinflation? or outright deflation within society? I look at the evidence, and the evidence tells me that the core CPI, taking out all, uh, energy and food, the core CPI is up 2.2% relative to 12 months ago. 
If you go back 12 months and you do the same calculation, mm -hmm. it was 1.7. So inflation is gradually moving up. Vice Chairman Fisher speaks of an <laughs> ultra-accommodative Federal Reserve. How do we get out of this trap we're in, the ultra-accommodative trap? It's called raising interest rates. What so, would happen? We raise interest rates. They listen to Feldstein. <laughs> Chairman Feldstein comes in and says we're going to raise interest rates. What happens? Market uh, falls apart. Surveillance ratings go up. I think if they keep Red Sox lose. <laughs> I think if they keep making it clear that they're going to not raise rates, well, then it'll come as a surprise and the market won't like it. But if they start signaling, as now a number of the Fed leaders have begun to do, so Lael Brainard was really an outlier when she stuck to her traditional, very dovish view. But you look at Eric Rosengren, a thoughtful head of the Boston Fed or John Williams, uh, similarly at the San Francisco Fed. These guys have been signaling recently that they think the time has come to start tightening up. So I think it'll happen, but I think right now the Fed is preferring to have a uh, super low rate of interest driving up the inflation rate. Just 30 seconds left. The predicate for the Dove's argument is the Phillips curve. Do you believe the Phillips curve still holds, still works? I just gave you the evidence. I think it does. 2.2% inflation now. A year ago, it was 1.7. So these things don't shoot up, but they're beginning to move just as you'd mm -hmm. expect with super low unemployment. We could talk for six hours. Martin Feldstein of Harvard. Uh, University. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciated, Professor uh, Felsen. Uh, were you the inventor of EC-10? Uh, no, I don't think so. It used no. to be called, when I was an undergraduate, it was called EC-1. And in yeah, earlier I mean, you generation, made it 10 times greater. That, well, it's called inflation. We've pushed up the numbers. Is Man Q teaching EC-100? <laughs> no, he's teaching EC-10. Okay, Martin <laughs> Feldstein. Thank you so much with Harvard University. Are we exuberant? That's, are we irrational about it all? That's the question. The man who invented the term, of course, is uh, Yeltsin Robert Schiller. Uh, he has uh, written any number of books about uh, irrational exuberance in the stock market. He's studied it for years. He is the Nobel laureate, and uh, he's kind enough to stop by here at the National Association for Business Economics meeting. Uh, Tom went there, uh, Bob, because uh, we, for what, the last three, four, five months, the stock market has done nothing. Then all of a sudden on Friday, it collapses. The Dow Jones Industrials go down almost 400 points. And then yesterday, uh, when we were on, Tom and I were on, the futures market says we're going to be down another 120 points. By the end of the day, we're up 240 points. Uh, what, do you, what do you make of that? And, and what do you make of valuations in the markets these days? Well, this is a kind of normal surprise. <laughs> we used to have events like this all the time. It comes across always as a puzzle. Why did the market move so much last Friday? And why did it recover? You know, what really has changed? It's always been a puzzle. It doesn't seem to make any sense. And you just wonder, how do people all reach different opinions? It was down over 2%. And then in, in Europe and Asia, too, there was a, a feedback onto them. Uh, so what to make of it? The, the story that came out, was something about Eric Rosengren, who's uh, president of the Boston Fed, 
who gave a talk at some local chamber of commerce, and he expressed <laughs> worries about the economy overheating. That was it. So that maybe they would tighten at the next meeting of the Fed. But that seems so insubstantial. Why would you think that what one member of the FOMC said at some meeting yeah. should change your valuation of the market by over 2% and then change your mind again on Monday when he didn't take it back? <laughs> Well, it raises kind of the question in my mind, in a lot of people's mind, is whether uh, this long period of extraordinary monetary policy is distorting markets, distorting prices, uh, at the same time that we have seen what seems to be a fundamental change in the way people trade, humans moving aside, computers moving in. Yeah, well, they've, we are really in a funny period. You know, history is always useless because we're always in a, this time is different. So you, you yeah. point out, we've had a longer period of low interest rates than ever before. Uh, and we have this uh, computer revolution going on. Those are exactly the issues. And we don't, history isn't a guide. They won't tell you what's going to happen next because we're out of the historical range. We've never before had a, a, a robotics revolution <laughs> like we're going through yeah. now. And we've never before had such a long period of low interest, especially long-term interest rates. Professor Schiller, from your Nobel Prize lecture, which I thought was exceptionally thoughtful, and Mike, wonderfully less math than some choice morsels <laughs> that I've seen. Robert Schiller, my definition puts the epidemic nature, the emotions of investors, and the nature of the news and information media, including Bloomberg surveillance, at center of the definition right. of bubbles. Bob Schiller, are Mike McKee and I the reason we have bubbles? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to flatter you <laughs> too much. Maybe you are part of it. But it goes to the <laughs> hype of the day. It goes within our unorthodox economics, the original stuff being done by central bankers. Are they just ap adapting to the hype and the hyperbole of the day? You know, I wish central banking were more of a science. Unfortunately, I think it was Roy Hawtrey wrote a book called The Art of Central Banking because it really is an art and uh, you can get it wrong because it involves judgments of human nature. In this financial crisis, uh, think what Bernanke had to go through with uh, a collapsing financial sector and uh, the, the, the risk of a string of bankruptcies. So, you know, and, and, and looking at how mob psychology, I say mob psychology, crowd psychology was changing so fast. They had to play it by gut instincts. There's, no one could tell them what to do. Uh, and uh, I think probably they they did a reasonable thing. Uh, they've saved us from a worse disaster. But we're you know we're not just climbing back into normalcy either. So uh, <laughs> I'm glad I'm not Fed chairman. Actually, <laughs> well, they uh, uh, will tell you privately, and you know the consensus of the economists here at NABE seems to be that uh, they didn't know what they were getting into, but they had to do something. Uh, and now they don't know how to get out of it right. because they don't know what the unintended consequences of moving the other way is. So if that's the case, then what's the Hippocratic ideal? Uh, if you're going to first do no harm, is it that you sit there, given what we were talking about with distorted markets, right. or you try to 
get back to whatever the definition of normal is? Well, I think that if uh, we don't have a science, but we have some idea that quantitative easing probably helped, <laughs> you know, uh, low interest rates are, you know, even negative interest rates. Uh, it, you feel uncomfortable because you wish it were more of a science, but I think that's what we're stuck with. And, and you know, it's, it's the real world. And, uh, uh, you know, I mm. personally think a lot of people are increasingly fearful about how technology is changing the landscape in so many dramatic ways. Uh, that, I think that that anxiety is part of our problem. Part of the reason we have low interest rates and and low markets in uh, many other countries of the world is we just don't know where it's going, and so it it doesn't bring tremendous enthusiasm for capital expenditure. That uh, well, even if interest rates are zero. We're in Atlanta at the National Association for Business Economics Annual Conference, and we are talking with uh, Robert Schiller. He is, uh, of course, the Yale University economics professor, Nobel laureate, and uh, author of so many books and, and uh, different um, as, uh, studying different aspects of finance that you don't even know where to begin. But I want to go back to what we were talking about before the break, uh, and that's the stock market. You uh, came up with the cyclic, cyclically adjusted uh, price-equity ratio, uh, the CAPE ratio, that a lot of people like to follow. It doesn't get as much publicity as regular PEs. Uh, you, when you look at it now, it's at like 26.6, which is historically quite high. Uh, what do you make of, of market valuations these days? But more importantly, how accurate is it in a world where uh, prices are distorted by central bank policies? Can you really get an accurate multiple these days? Well, the big, yeah, the elephant in the room is the very low long-term interest rates. So, yeah, you, you'd think that uh, if interest rates are low, the stock market should be high. Uh, otherwise, there isn't balance between the two markets. So that brings us back to then the big unknown. Well, interest rates are low. They've been low now ever since the crisis, the financial crisis. Uh, they've gotten really low. Uh, but what's the outlook for them? If, if the interest rates go back up, bond prices fall, you might think that this reason for a high stock market disappears too. Uh, on the other hand, I don't think that it's a very clear theory because right now in Europe, for example, stock markets are not particularly high, but their interest rates, their interest rates are low. So, you know, don't believe this theory as God's truth. It's just uh, some, something that seems plausible. So I, I kind of think the stock market in the U.S. is a little bit vulnerable at least. You know, I, nobody can predict it accurately, but it is vulnerable because interest rates are not a secure base for the market to be so high. Well, that's kind of the issue is how do you model something when rate, I mean, a 26.6, it tells you something maybe if you're in a normal interest rate environment where you might be three or four percentage points. But when you're at 37 basis points, that would justify much higher, you know, stock market multiples. Yeah. And yet is that realistic? Well, I wish I knew. <laughs> My guess is, if you look at historically, uh, moving out of the stock market when it's been high into the bond market, let's say, has been a good move when 
the bond market isn't also high, but we're just not in a 1929. My model says get out of the stock market. I wish I were around then. I would have done it. But we're not in 1929 because Darn. we have these very low interest rates. You see, Tom, I, how he did a segue to set you up. He for, set me you know, up perfectly. I was sitting there going, Bob Schiller studied under Irving Fisher in 1929. <laughs> That's what I thought. Folks, Irving Fisher took the first PhD at Yale. And to give you an idea, when he did his dissertation, none other than Francis Edgeworth of England, who who is beloved in economics, raved about his work. And as you know, Bob Schiller, Irving Fisher set the foundation for so much of American economics. There is a theory wandering out now, not neo-Schiller, but neo-Fisherian economics, which basically says if you lower interest rates, odd things can happen. With what you've observed in this crisis and in our dash to lower interest rates, do those lower interest rates feed back into disinflation and outright deflation? Uh, okay. For, this is a long question. It started out with Irving Fisher. And, <laughs> well, and now uh, uh, Irving Fisher was very concerned about inflation. Yes. Uh, but I uh, don't know what he would say if he were alive. I'm a, I am indeed an admirer of Irving Fisher. Well, I agree with you strongly that people have grabbed the legacy of Professor Fisher. And folks, this is not Stan Fisher. This is Irving Fisher from yeah. 80 yeah. years ago. But I agree with you strongly, Professor, that they've, they've co-opted Irving Fisher over to this debate. But within the present debate, does Bob Schiller suggest that lower interest rates feed on themselves into disinflation and at times deflation. Well, normally lower interest rates are thought to be inflationary, but that's not what we've seen. Uh, so I, I, I can't quite put this in neo-fisherian terms, I try as I might, but I think that I think that what's happening now is if you want a simple story and it's oversimplified, is that we're fearful for the future. We don't see great investment opportunities. The Fed, is so, sensing the weakness, has cut interest rates, not just the Fed, but other central banks as well. This is a worldwide phenomenon. And they're, they're just out of ammunition. They're doing what they, they can. That the fundamental problem doesn't come from the central banks. It comes from the technological revolution the whole world is going through. Different countries are reacting to it differently, but it's all an anxious reaction. Does the Fed have the ability to generate inflation anymore? I would think so. You'd think that they control the money supply. There is this thing called helicopter money that the uh, central bankers are talking about very carefully. <laughs> yes. Uh, but, you know, if that that's, refers to an old metaphor that uh, Milton Friedman started uh, half a century ago. They have to be able to create inflation because they could always get a bunch of helicopters, print money, and fly over all the major cities and just drop it. And if there's all this money, people would spend it, right? It would have to be spent, and it would push prices up. So I think that's where I think they they ought to be able to. But it's funny that they haven't been more successful uh, recently. When you were writing your textbook, uh, did the idea that helicopter money would seriously be discussed as yeah. a monetary policy option ever occur to you? You know, it's been 
ever since I read as a kid, <laughs> Milton Friedman, it's been sort of on my mind. And it seems like we heard little noises from uh, Fed people. They don't want to bring it up. But in, in a time when we're kind of desperate, maybe they are a little bit freer to talk about it. When you look, Professor Schiller, at what you would teach at Yale, is the orthodoxy of the modern age, is it gone? I mean, we had a simpler economics, which you led the charge on, that photo of you and Medigliani from 40 years ago when you were a young kid. I, I mean, where we are now with our mathiness and what we've been through with the crisis, are we in search of a new economics or do we use the existing models? You use this word mathiness, which I associate with Paul Romer at NYU. He just came by Yale and gave a talk on what's wrong with macroeconomics. And uh, there's a, I think that the uh, focusing on mathematics has diminished. People mistrust uh, models with too much of an emphasis on math. But it's not gone in the profession, not by any means. And I think math has a fundamental role in economics that we have to maintain. On the other hand... It shouldn't be a purely mathematical discipline. So there's this other revolution of behavioral economics, looking at psychology. And I, I think this is gradually sinking into the econ profession. We really have to think, events like happened last Friday that we just talked about, when the stock markets of the world fell a couple percent for no apparent reason. What is it? It must be something like crowd, crowd psychology. And now the whole world is a crowd with the Internet and with other communications. Bob Schiller, thank you very much for stopping by today. Uh, Bob uh, from Yale University and, of course, uh, Nobel laureate and fascinating, uh, as always, to listen All right, to my pleasure. on the equity markets today. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.